0: This is Yusai. welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. Warning, this open conversation contains unbeat curse words. Listener discretion is advised. This past year, we saw a seismic shift in the culinary industry across the globe. With so many restaurants closing, Food media has championed and celebrated the world they love so much. Food culture is shaped by writers. This is why it's so important for them to encourage us to seek out new experiences, to dine both with high end eateries and the whole in the world mom and pop shops that make authentic, simple meals. Andy Wong is a food writer with an incredible history. He's very reluctant to be called a critic as he's always worked to tell the stories and observe the efforts of chefs and cooks across the country, who are crafting dishes of all culture, especially authentic Asian cuisine. He's penned for all the notable food and travel publications, including the New York Times, New York Post, Condé Nast Traveler, Taste, Du Jour, and Food and & Wine magazine. Currently, he hosts LA Food Game, with a former associate editor of Eater LA, Crystal Closer, on Sunday nights on Clubhouse. Thank you for being with me here today, Andy.
1: Thank you, you.
0: You know, I was reading about you and I did a little bit of research. I found out that you were not always writing about food. You were not in the food industry. You were actually in real estate. Can you give us a little background on how that path led you to writing about food and restaurants?
1: Sure, I mean nothing in quote unquote journalism is a linear path. So I'm glad you're asking me this way instead of the other way, which is people always ask. So, what are the steps I need to take to do what you do? And I'm like, I don't want to sound like a mean person, but I have no advice for you, right? Because there is no, there is no linear path to it. I was actually covering technology first, uh, finance, sports, lots of other things. I've always been very interested in um, uh, just, you know, booms and frenzies and mania. So I covered the original tech boom. I wrote the first New York Times stories about blogs and Google. And then I happened to be in New York where this condo boom was happening. And I got a job covering that. Real estate turned into hospitality because once you start writing about buildings, you realize the same people were building condos are also building huge, mixed huge things that have hotels and restaurants and they're all the landlords. I was very lucky to become the travel editor at the New York Post after becoming the real estate editor and travel just more and more because of where cultural momentum was going. You would go to certain cities and realize the main reason people are traveling here is because of the food scene, Los Angeles being one of them. So it's not a linear path. but If you look at it that way, it's a very logical path, right? Where you cover luxury real estate you cover buildings, and then you start writing about the other things that the people who build these buildings have, and it turns out that it's very tied into the restaurant business. But as you start writing about food, did you develop a passion for food, as well as the structure that builds the food industry? I've always loved food. I never considered myself an expert, you know, not even after I was writing for about it for a couple of years. But what I did realize is that in a lot of American cities and a lot of global cities, food was the most exciting story. So I think I got pretty good at finding those stories. And then as I've sort of grown, right, where there's been different facets of it, right, I've definitely had phases in my life where I've written about the spectacle and, you know, the luxe parts of food and the way that it overlaps with fashion and nightlife and celebrity and all that. I mean, I worked at the New York Post. Of course I did, right? (laughs) So... As I moved to Los Angeles, it really did hammer home the point there's so much great immigrant food, right? So many of the best stories are about the people who are hustling in their garage or smoking meat in their backyard and they don't yet have a restaurant. Or, you know, it's people who were really, really good at cooking, you know, traditional French food who had gone to the right culinary schools and cooked it in Paris and cooked in London and Rome, wherever. And then they suddenly just wanted to cook the food that they grew up with because they realized we should celebrate this thing that, you know, I've tried to sort of hide or I was even ashamed of for all these years. So I've been writing more and more stories just about the family aspect of food. But I, and I think that's one of the most compelling things. I mean, especially now during this pandemic because, you know, family is one of the few things that keeps people together and keeps people fighting when they would otherwise would just give up.
0: For the first time in our culture and and, and in the realm of our media, we begin to see that diversity conversation is at the surface. We, from Black Lives Matters to inclusion for the Oscars and, and having representation behind the camera and in front of the camera, I wonder, for you as a, as a writer as a whole, did you find that being a minor, being Asian-American, even though you were behind the lens, you were behind those words, that you ever found challenges to be in a position where you want to be recognized?
1: I was very lucky in that I've largely worked with a group of editors, including Danica Lowe, who's a close friend who I've worked for uh, since the New York Post. So. You know, more than fifteen years at all these different places, where we had our own little group of people that built each other up and took care of each other. Without that, honestly, I would I would have been lost. Every place I worked, the representation in most because I worked at glossy magazines, I worked at big newspapers. The representation uh, in the newsroom or you know, in the magazine office clearly does not match what you should be covering when you're covering food. But thankfully, I've always found editors, I think they thought that um, uh, travel was kind of just like, you know, it was a feature section. It was lighter. It was fluff. So they let us get away with so much without realizing that we were being overtly political or trying to be subversive or we we're going to Las Vegas. And although we were covering the strip, we'd go off strip and literally write a huge story Uh, about Chinatown, where there was a Japanese restaurant next to a Korean restaurant, next to a place that was, you know, serving uni pasta, which was Japanese-Italian. So I luckily have always found places that will let me do that. Uh, I do not at all want to diminish the challenges of people who are trying to break into this, because I know this is really hard, because it's like, look, so much of media is a stupid fucking click, right? You just know somebody or you don't. Thankfully, I knew people from the beginning that have cared about the same things that I have cared about, and I feel extremely lucky that I, that I found that.
0: As a photographer, I have always found it was incumbent on me to, to celebrate diversity and to celebrate minorities, because I myself am one. As I got more mature in the industry, I realized that it wasn't I felt like I was marginalized, but I felt like the subject matter I want to photograph are marginalized, right? Right.
1: size, age, color this is obviously the result of things that are both great and things are not you look at like Vanity fair in the last year and what Kid jones has done where there is now a pattern before it was even the quote-unquote fashionable or correct thing to do where she's just like i'm gonna put black people on the fucking cover of this thing you know once you start putting black people on the cover when something like black lives matter happens and then you're just like okay let me get some more influential black people and put them in the magazine They know that you're not faking it. They know that this comes from a real place. They know that you tried extremely hard to get to this point. And I think that, and I'm not at all comparing, you know, the places I work for to Vanity Fair. I'm just saying that I have worked for places where the reason that we have gotten access to people or the reason that I know I can get certain people to call me back is because there's been a history of me covering their stories, not in the you know, glossed over, glossing that 300 word thing about like what's in your fucking handbag type thing where it's more like, no, tell me where you came from and why this just tastes the way that it does because it doesn't taste like any of the other versions of this I've had. Once you sort of establish that trust, you get to do that. The only question now, obviously, is with so much media melting down, does this really become a thing where you do it because it's the right thing or you also do it because it's financially viable? Because the problem is you can't measure Vogue or GQ or the New York Post now versus 10 years ago because there was so much more fucking revenue there, right? So no matter who you put on the cover now, it's less impactful financially than who you did before. So it's like all right, what's the metric now for what we should be doing?
0: That's what people need to figure out. Well, the metric
1: to me is, are we talking
0: about it, right? Did It create a new conversation. For Vogue, very first time in the history of Vogue, having a black photographer to shoot a black woman on the cover, it's it's breaking history. It's crazy for me to even think being in the industry, in fashion industry, I never thought, has ever been a black photographer shooting for the cover of Vogue? That was never a question because I never thought, that institution would ever need to be questioned that way. But when it created a conversation, I truly don't care how you get there, get there. In my career, I've been given many opportunities to work in television. And I've always wanted to create my own show dedicated to my love of cooking Asian cuisine. After many pitches in Los Angeles and New York, I realized that there was still a lot of resistance for Asian American hosting a show and of telling stories of global food and culture. My show, Street to Kitchen Asia, found its home at Fox Asia and Netgeo Asia. Are the political changes that we are seeing in media opening up opportunities and dialogues for marginalized people and their stories to be heard? As you have covered so many stories, do you see we're starting to evolve and actually embrace, and I think social media is forcing people to, to embrace the everyday chef that cooks at home?
1: I think that more and more, especially now during the pandemic, there are fewer and fewer restaurants for people to write about, right? So there's been all sorts of stories, and I mean, these have been big stories in the LA Times. There's like lists on infatuation, which literally means like it just runs the gamut of food media. Where everybody's covering people who are just, I have a job, this is my side hustle, I'm also making Caribbean patties and I'm selling one day a week, right? Or I'm smoking barbecue at my house, right? Or Roy Choi has a is part of this startup two box, which is now just like, hey, if you're the enchilada lady or you're the candy house in a certain neighborhood that everybody knows about, you can partner with our app and we can deliver your food. Like that's their goal. So I think that we are at this point where that stuff is being embraced because the businesses that are starting, you know, that are starting now just out of necessity. They speak to the very essence of where a lot of restaurants came from. Because like at the same time, I'm writing a story about Porto's. Porto's is like this crazy restaurant where they're they crazy collection of bakeries where they sell like almost two million of one single pastry Once. each month, right? Guama cheese, right? Yeah, guava cheese one. is amazing. I think the cheese roll might even sell more. But the point is it's just like so they literally sell millions of pastries every month. But that business started when, you know, the matriarch, Rosa Porto, was in Cuba making cakes out of her house and selling to her neighbors. And there's probably no busier, no more vital bakery in the history of Los Angeles. So that's the answer, you know, to your question about, yes, home cooks are being embraced more. People who are just messing around and figuring things out are being embraced. The other thing is, is there has been a discernible shift in the last few years where, yeah, it's still hard for you to get a show, and I completely recognize that. But at least that uh, you see people being recognized for essentially showcasing riffs on what their heritage is, right? Mei Lin, obviously, one top chef. Cato was the number one restaurant in the LA Times for John Yao, and this chef was not even 30 years old. I mean, I think he's barely in his mid-20s now. So that's getting recognized, right? You just, like, look on Netflix, right? David Chang, arguably, and yes, he does have celebrity... Friends that joined him in a lot of these programs, like you were alluding to. He is arguably the most famous chef uh, in America, if not the world right now. The significant thing to me about his fame is not that he's like become this cross-media superstar because, great, I'm happy for him, he deserves it. It's that two years ago when he opened a restaurant in L.A., Major Domo, maybe a little more than two years ago now, he told me and he told anybody else who would listen this is the most korean restaurant i've ever opened after all these years i no longer care this is as korean as i've ever been in a restaurant you look at who's the second biggest food star you know one of the other big food stars on netflix right now roy choi right and winning the emmy this year for yeah for bread. And bread, which is complete 100 percent about telling stories of people who are marginalized, right, and communities, and communities that are on the fringes that are overlooked and don't have the basic services that other places do. So I think that, like, it's happening slowly, but those stories are being told. And, you know, somebody like our Sher- friend Shirley, Top Chef did sort of help her ascend to a certain realm in terms of, like, nationwide visibility. But the thing is, is she's cooking her food now. She used to run kitchens for people like Jose Andres. But now she's like 100% cooking her food now. And we're now at a point where it makes more sense for her to be cooking her food than anybody else's food. And that makes a big difference, I think.
0: Clearly, the times that we're living are dictating how we experience food culture. While staying optimistic, while wondering where things will go from here. You write about stories of people. I think if a point of view can come from celebrating them first before the food, perhaps we'll have to be a kinder place for for these food articles and, and critics and, that we read about. know, right. as a writer, I do have to ask, when you cover these stories, you know food, a lot of it's necessity, right? My dad worked in a Chinese restaurant out of pure necessity because he couldn't speak English in America and he was a photographer in Taiwan so it's all pure out of necessity so when you enter a story and when you know the story is not going to be the most positive light how do you go about that knowing that it could perhaps influence the establishment?
1: I was never a critic and I did contribute some things to the gossip pages you know And some of those things were helpful to people and some of them were probably hurtful to people. But the thing that we did realize after a while, and I think this is something that my, you know, old friend Paula Krolik told me, not even as advice. Like, strangely, like, when I started working with the New York Post, my desk was next to Facebook and I could hear them yelling all the time. And uh, and Paula, who I've stayed in touch with, I think one time she just said to me, you know, like, the best thing that you can do about somebody who has, you know, who has a story that, you know, you think isn't that compelling, they don't deserve attention, it's like, just don't give them that attention at all. So if they do something terrible and they need to be called out on it, right? Yes, do that. But it's literally just like, I think your food is mediocre and you're not a nice person. I just won't write about it. Because I think that the choices that you make about who you write about are sort of as important as the editing process once you're starting to work on that story. Are you
0: seeing the new assignments in the recent time the last six months begin to change the subject matter begin to change as magazine approach you are you seeing them actually making this this shift a
1: meter to really celebrate the marginalized community in the food industry more and more I mean I think that like you know I've been writing for Food and Wine for the last few years I think that because of Danica they were already that they were already there I think food media overall is definitely heading more in that direction but the other thing that you have to realize you know there's gotta be some other word besides pivot, right? Because at this point, uh, if you look at media, it's changing so much that the honest answer is, I don't know if the last few months of you know, coverage is gonna be indicative of what happens in the next few months. Because sadly, in the next few months, what's gonna happen is that more and more restaurants are just going to close. What are we gonna do when the majority of our stories are just tribute? What is gonna happen to the food culture as we, continuing down this path of so many of them closing do you see hope that maybe when we get back to the new normal i totally understand a chef who after they quote unquote pivoted five times realized that i can't be a fine dining restaurant the grocery store thing didn't work out for me the delivery thing didn't work out for me because doordash was taking too much of my money okay so now i'm going to try this other thing but i only have six tables on the patio this doesn't work i'm going to end up selling you know and i'm just making this up but i'm also kind of not. I'm just going to start selling like poke bowls, right? And like cumin scented lamb burgers. And it's like, no, once you get to that point, you realize I'm trying to survive for the people around me, but I'm not doing anything close to the thing that I originally wanted to do. So I get it. If it's like, maybe I just don't lose a few hundred thousand dollars trying to save this and maybe I just stop. Now, the other thing that is just really, really hard to think about is that, if you've created a really, really great restaurant, to me, it's not and look, I don't give a shit about the argument about whether uh, chefs are artists versus craftsmen or whatever, or you know, they're more like steelworkers or they're more like Da Vinci, or they're more like Ed Mouse versus Taylor Swift, like whether it's like sampling or writing or whatever the fuck. I do not care about that, right? All I'm saying is that it takes a lot. It takes a lot out of you physically, mentally, and spiritually to open a great restaurant and maintain it, right? So it's the same type of spiritual energy that it takes you to write your first great whatever 1100 page novel. If somebody then just says, okay, we have a world where your restaurant or your novel doesn't exist. It's not like you can just flip a switch and say, oh, I'm just going to go do something just as great again, right? Right. Some people will be able to. They're definitely great serial entrepreneurs in this world. They're definitely great serial creators. but. Most most human brains do not have the capacity to replicate greatness again and again. I mean, you hear this all the time in Silicon Valley, right? Where the guy, some guy like starts Hotmail at a very young age and sells it to Microsoft for like $800 million. He has the rest of his life to come up with something as great. And guess what? Some people are going to think that like you failed and you needed it, but that's the stupidest fucking thing. You invented something that changed the world. It changed the way that hundreds of millions, I mean, well, now probably billions of people communicate. That was enough for your one accomplishment. You can just go invest, figure out other things, do that. And so that's the thing, right? A lot of chefs, and Roy Choi has talked to me about this a lot, right? The difference between total success and something that just becomes a failure, like it could be something that's just one hairline off, right? Mm -hmm. When you hit it like he did with Kogi Barbecue, it becomes effortless. You feel invincible. You can do anything. But he's also opened restaurants, that admittedly, where it's like, okay, this thing wasn't right, and I didn't figure it out, and I couldn't get to the finish line. So that's the thing. For every Kogi, there are also things that won't work. And so what I'm worried about is that a lot of these institutions, and I mean, thankfully, like, Kogi's still around. When a lot of these institutions disappear, they may come back in a different form, and maybe it'll be better, maybe it'll be worse, but we don't know yet. Different levels of just the people in the industry of the Michelin star restaurants
0: and versus the hole in the walls. Like, I find it such a dichotomy for me who to champion for at times, right? I wish the three Michelin star restaurants would begin to cook food that would actually relate to people. Perhaps it's the time they should do that, but they don't pivot that easily, as you said, right? And then at the same time, you want to to support and celebrate the hole in the wall because you know how important each dollar means to them. Then the five-star restaurants, fine dining. Then you start looking at a fine dining restaurant employs 25 people. Then you got to celebrate them. I have a tug of war in my head how to
1: support and how to, what side of things am I? Yeah, on? and right? no matter what you do, and I was texting with a chef, Justin and Anna Jack, who's in the Beverly Soon said just about the fact that whatever you do, it doesn't feel like it's enough because it's not enough. So at this point, I'm not so concerned about the hierarchy. Yes, I agree with David Chang that the restaurants with the most cultural currency are the ones that you should attempt to save. But honestly, I believe in supporting restaurants. However you decide to support restaurants, just go do it that way.
0: Andy wrote a poignant story for Zagat about the closing of the iconic Beverly Soon tofu in Los Angeles in 2020 interviewing chefs and getting their take on this famous eatery. But you know what's interesting? When I read the story and I saw the six chefs that you interviewed, majority of them were Asian. As I'm celebrating amazing, there are Asian chef being spotlight in this situation. I'm going, what are the white chefs? How come they don't come to this restaurant? And why is Asian food not celebrated like French cuisine or Italian cuisine?
1: So, I mean, I think that there are white chefs that have gone to that restaurant. I also, I feel like in a city like Los Angeles, right, uh, if you're somebody who cares about food, you're going end up going to eat everywhere. And I will say that, like, all right, there, there was definitely, you know, a lot of white, definitely were prominent people, white people in the food world who were a champion of that restaurant. It's just that, unfortunately, Jonathan Gold and Anthony Bourdain are not with us. Right now, and if they were, they would have done a tribute probably to Beverly Sun tofu, you know, even earlier than I did. That it would have rendered mine unnecessary, and I would have been very happy to have seen that, you know.
0: How do we elevate Asian cuisine? How do we begin to educate that Asian cuisine should have a moment of, like French cuisine? Is that ever going to be possible?
1: I mean, I think it is starting to happen a little bit. I just feel like, um, uh, you know, you look at what happened with you know, Bon Appetit and everybody had all these quibbles about them. My main quibble about Bon Appetit, when they went to a city like Los Angeles, they never really just like went out there, right? They were always like going to juice in Venice or something. And my whole thing was just like, if you're going to in the year, whatever, 2019, write like your seven fucking story about like why this sprouted rye bread is so good, you've got to be going also to eat in Torrance. And in San Gabriel and Alhambra and El Monte and La Puente and Orange County, right? I don't know what it's gonna take to make all these all the food writers more intrepid, but I think more and more of them are doing this um, uh, themselves, right? And you know, and I do wanna like shout out like you know, somebody like the senior editor at Eater LA is Farley Elliott, who is white, right? Matt Kang is the editor there, he's Korean. Farley, as much as Matt, though, whenever somebody comes to another city and wants to go eat somewhere, he'll take them to go eat tacos at El Russo, right? Because he'll just be like, hey, there's two national food writers here. Let's just go eat this thing that I think is the best version of this, right? And I think that, you know, one of the things that makes me really sad, and I was texting Farley about this a few months ago, is just that I feel like a lot of these things are already on the brink of happening. And El Russo did get named, you know, like in the food and wine, like best new Restaurant. Issue, I think that a lot of these things are on the cusp of happening. Like Cantonese barbecue in LA, right? Rice Box, Pearl River Deli. That's Morgansburg There's this restaurant called Needle. Cantonese, like modern Cantonese barbecue in LA, was about to become a national story. I know because i was working on something. I know other people that were hovering. I feel like you know what we're doing right now is like I felt like there's this momentum. COVID slowed down that momentum, and obviously, like I'm, you know, I've been spending the last few months sort of pouring one out. For the people that I feel like should have already gotten supernova, right? There's this restaurant, the Brother Sushi in Woodland Hills, that I just championed and championed and championed because I just thought it was like such a great restaurant. You know, one of the things that was crushing to me is that I saw Bill Addison, the LA Times food critic, post about it and he posted his take out there and said, you know, right before the lockdown, I had a reservation at this restaurant to review it. But of course, that review never came out. So I think that in LA, If things get back to normal, we're already heading down that path. And I think that, um, uh, as you were saying, social media is this great equalizing factor. And now you can go on social media in L.A. at least and just find an amazing Indonesian pop-up, which is at a restaurant in Koreatown that serves ramen, which is co-owned by the Indonesian general manager of Inaka, which has two Michelin stars on was on Chef's table. And so, you know, and I tweeted something about that because it's like, that's like a fucking Mad of all those things that I said. But in LA, it just makes sense, right? There's another great ramen place that I wrote about, you know, not far from Iki Ramen, where the Indonesian pop-up is, where a Japanese restaurant owned by Koreans, and Koreans will go in there and realize, wow, this beef bone ramen tastes a lot like Korean beef bone soup, and it's like, yeah, there's a reason, right? But the fact that, like, there are Asians now who also recognize like all the difference and all the nuances, right? I just got great on from a woman who now is just a, from a chef, um, G.E. Kim, who's cooking for herself now because she had a pop-up that was going to be a restaurant, and obviously you know what happened with COVID, so now she's just making next-level farmer's market on. But her pedigree she cooked at Rustic Canyon, and she cooked at Dairy Banco, so she knows how to cook all that other stuff. Now she's doing this thing where she's cooking what she wants to eat, and she's also honoring like, what her actual family has done because she comes from a family of botan makers. They don't do it the same way she does, but modernizing it is valid, obviously. Modernizing it opens it up to a bigger audience.
0: Well, I think having a conversation here today and
1: having exposed
0: some of these stories that you're talking about is already going to help the situation. Right? And, 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 and on top of the show, I, t- I did say that there's a lot of this about Asian inclusion. However, this is, it's all minority across the board. As a food writer, I'm sure that you come across not enough story written about black chefs as well. Like For me, it was such an educational process that I literally went on Google and said, show me all black own
1: restaurants. So right, I can figure out to
0: support that. And there is a list, you guys. So, so those of you guys who said,
1: I don't know where to find it. you Yeah, we'll Ken Hong and Infatuation made a great one for LA. But yeah, you know, these are restaurants that I've been celebrating for years just because I just really, really liked good food. I liked comfort food. And I liked driving around LA to different neighborhoods and finding things. So, I think naturally in the as diverse in LA, I mean, like New York was like this a little bit too, although a lot of people in New never go to Staten Island to eat Sri Lankan food or whatever, just because Staten Island might as well be another planet for certain people. But I did go to all five boroughs, I did eat around all the time. Like, um, you know, Robert Sitzma, who was at the Village Voice, the great food critic at the Village Voice, it was the one who actually introduced me to Jonathan Gold years ago. You know, and then Robert went off to eat her. He was a formative influence in my life. For years, even though I had no intention of ever writing about food, he was just a friend that I went out to eat with. And he, I was just like, get on the subway, get on the seven train. He'd be like, all right, we're going to eat at 7 taco places, and we're going to get back on the train. Or we're going to drive somewhere weird in New Jersey just to eat like this one Chinese dumpling. You know, being that intrepid and being that curious and wanting to find those stories, I don't think I've ever said that, but I don't owe him a lot because I'm a food writer now. I owe him a lot just for opening me up to the fact that If you're in a city, you should just go see that whole city. That's how you sort of just, you just get in your car and you go. What will be the next assignment, your dream assignment to be when this is over? It will be over one day. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to write about a lot of these restaurants reopening. I mean, if Beverly Soon reopens, I'm all over there, right? If some of these places come back stronger, if John Yao actually fulfills his dream of becoming the first three Michelin star Taiwanese restaurant in L.A., that means he will have opened that restaurant, and that will be huge. If Yubo, the most avant-garde special chef in the world, really gets to fulfill his dream of opening a restaurant in L.A., that will solidify L.A. as one of the best cities for Asian food. So if some of this comes back, like those, those are all dream assignments. I just, I just picked to a point where they can happen.
0: Andy, thank you so much for celebrating chefs so authentically creating food near to their hearts, as well as sharing their stories. We'll continue to follow your stories and keep up with the LA Food Gang. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusite.com. Follow me on Instagram at usai88 for updates. Let's Talk is a production of ADA Phases. I'm your host, Usai. Our director, Luis Jaime, And writer, editor,
1: and producer, Trevor Swenjian.